And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians, chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 984. 984. As you're turning there, let me just share what a joy it is to be with you this day, the 19th anniversary of Grace Baptist Church. It's a remarkable thing what God has done. This church began as a fledgling little Bible study, and now it has grown into all that you see before you now. And we give thanks to God for it. And I believe that the best days of this church are yet in the future. Can't wait to see what the Lord is going to do through us in these years to come. Well, let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll consider this passage together. Lord, we do offer you our thanks for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we thank you for drawing us to yourself in saving faith. Thank you for bringing us together and making of us a local church family. Thank you, Lord, for providing for this church for 19 years running. Lord, we thank you for all of those who have come to faith in Christ since the founding of this church, for those baptized and added to our church membership. We thank you for the believers that you've given to us in how you have, have grown their faith through this church's ministry, but also how you have enriched this church and provided for this church through their talents and sacrificial service. Lord, you've done wonders for us. Lord, please use us in the years ahead. We are living in tumultuous times, but we know that your word provides an all-sufficient source of wisdom as we chart these waters. Lord, help us to be faithful to your word. As we study your your word now, Lord, a a portion of of the book of Colossians might give us greater understanding uh, of the nature of the Christian faith and help us to take this knowledge with us. Might it have an impact on the way that we live out our Christian lives day to day? And I pray all of these things in your son's name and for his glory. Amen. Now, about 15 years ago, Tim McGraw released a hit song entitled, Live Like You Were Dying. It's about a man in his early 40s who's diagnosed with cancer, and the diagnosis transforms his whole outlook on life. And in one of the verses of the song, the man says this, quote, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't, and I became a friend a friend would like to have. And I finally read the good book. And I took a good, long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. And the song ends with these words. Someday I hope that you get the chance to live like you are dying. This is a powerful song. But in today's text, the Apostle Paul is going to take it one step further. Here the Apostle Paul is going to say to we Christians that we have already died. And we have been raised to new life in Christ. 
And that knowing this should have a transformative effect in the way that we live our lives day to day in the here and now. It should cause us to make a clean break with the thoughts and, and lifestyle patterns of the past, and it should cause us to give ourselves entirely to a new heavenly way of living. And let's see this together now as I read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So you notice that this entire passage is anchored in Christ, in his person and his work. So let's take a moment just to review what Paul has said about Christ thus far. So back in Colossians chapter 1, Paul explained that Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things were made, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been made by Christ and for Christ. But of course, this world that that Christ has made is now broken. It's been broken by sin and all of its effects. And so out of his great love for us, the Son of God emptied himself, came to earth, robed his glory behind human flesh, and then lived among us for more than 30 years. And through his life and ministry, we learned about what God is like, and he taught us how to be reconciled to God. And then at the end of his earthly ministry, Christ went to the cross There on the cross, our Lord voluntarily took upon himself the full weight of the judgment that our sins deserve. And after bearing them in full, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. After that, our Lord's body was removed from the cross and it was placed into a cold, dark tomb where it stayed until the third day. And on the third day, a Sunday morning, our Lord rose from the grave, proving his victory over sin and death and hell in offering eternal life to all who will come to him in repentance and faith. And you know, what's really fascinating about today's text is that here the Apostle Paul explains that when we do receive Christ in repentance and faith, then we have our own death and resurrection experience which run parallel to Christ. You see that in verse 1, right? Christ rose, and it says, we Christians have been raised with him. And then down in verse 3, it says, and Christ died, and we Christians have also died to something. And he says, our new life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so when a person becomes a Christian, this amazing thing happens. They experience in their souls what Christ experienced in his body. Christ died, was buried, 
and rose from the grave. Well, so too, the one who, who uh, accepts Christ in faith dies to their old life. They are buried in baptism, and then they are raised to new life in Christ. You know, we witnessed the same idea last week or a couple of weeks ago from Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, quote, all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. So Christ died, was buried, and rose, and so too all who are in Christ, by virtue of their repentance and faith, they have died, been buried, and risen again spiritually. The life of the Christian parallels the life of their Lord. And Paul explains here in today's text that the new life which they possess is a life hidden in Christ. It's hidden in Christ. It's hidden in the sense that this new spiritual life is something that is beyond the range of our five senses. So you can look at a person five minutes before they came to Christ, five minutes after they came to Christ. You're not going to perceive any difference in the person, right? It's a spiritual reality. It's, it's hidden from view. But it is a reality nonetheless. It's also hidden in the sense that this new life is eternally secure in Christ. See, the Greek word translated hidden here has the dictionary definition of being kept in a safe place until needed. So our new spiritual life in Christ, it is, it is in the inner self. It's not perceivable by the five senses. And it's also being kept by God through Christ until the last day. It's a secure life in him. Jesus declared this himself in John chapter 10 when he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands, for I and my Father are one. And so we who have this new life in Christ will be carried through by the power of God in Christ right to the very end, to the completion of our salvation. And friends, when that happens, then what is hidden on the inside of us will become visibly manifest. Just look at verse 4. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, this is talking about his second coming, his coming in power and glory, When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Christ came once in humility to secure new life for us. And we've received that new life. We've died to the old life, been risen with Christ to the new. And then sometime in the future, our Lord is going to come back in glory. And when he does, we will be glorified. What is true of us on the inside will become manifest on the outside as we receive our new resurrection bodies. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. 
So you see, Christ died, was buried, and rose again, and so too is the Christian. We have died, we have been buried, we have risen to new life. And just as Christ will again come, and this time with power and glory, so too will we receive glory. The inner transformation begun in us will come to completion in Christ. Friends, when this completion comes, our sin natures will be completely purged, will receive those new bodies, and will enjoy the physical presence of the Lord for all of eternity. And so you see here in this text how the life of a Christian is inseparably linked to the life of Christ. It's as if the the life of Christ is recapitulated in the lives of each of his disciples. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the glory to come. It's, It's all mirrored in the disciples' experience. And this is by the will of God. That we who are in Christ should share our lives in Christ. In fact, verse 4 says, Christ is your life. Friends, these are glorious truths. Now, how should we live in light of them? Well, Paul also explains this in today's text. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2 again. He writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, then here's what you should do. He says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. So, if indeed we have experienced the new birth, if we have this, Here, then, is our task. It's to seek things that are above. It's to have our minds on things above. In other words, we are now called to live with a heavenly mindset. That's how the Christian is to, to live. Christ is in the heavens, so we should, as it were, be in the heavens with him. And we've talked about the false teachers in Colossae at length over the past several weeks. Remember, the false teachers in Colossae were trying to get this church to do the exact opposite, to have their minds on earthly things. Uh, Back in chapter 2, verse 16, they wanted the church of Colossae to get obsessed over things like food and drink and over festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. Chapter 2, verse 18, they were insisting the church practice asceticism, which is the rigorous self-discipline of the body as a means of earning merit with God. Chapter 2, verse 21, we have kind of their slogan, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then in chapter 2, verse 23, we learn they were promoting severity to the body. So you see these false teachers were working in Colossae, to try to get the Christians there to take their minds off of Christ, heavenly spiritual realities, to get their minds down here on the earthly things, obsessing over what we're eating, what we're drinking, what we're wearing, what is permissible to taste and touch and handle and what's not. What festivals should I be celebrating and what should I flee from? And making those things the, the basis of the Christian life. 
It was just another form of works righteousness based on discipline of the body. And so what this church in Colossae needed to hear was a word from Paul about what the Christian life is really like. And here Paul explains what it's really like. And we need to hear these words too. I talked about Joyce Murphy's church last Sunday, the church that that she spent her childhood in. You remember what this church said about being a Christian. They said, being a Christian means, if you're a lady, never wearing dresses with sleeveless shirts, or with, uh, excuse me, never wearing dresses uh, that were sleeveless, never wearing makeup, um, never wearing jewelry. If you're a man, it meant never wearing shorts. And for all Christians, it meant you don't touch playing cards or pool tables or alcohol, you don't go to Halloween parties, and, and a long list of other things. For them, this was the essence of the Christian experience. I've got a list of things I should do, I've got a list of things I should not do, and if I keep my list, I must be a good Christian. If I break one of these taboos, I'm no longer a Christian. They believe that heaven and hell were literally at stake over the issue of whether you put on lipstick when you wake up. That's how, that's how they saw the Christian faith. And it wasn't just that one church, okay? This is prevalent in our world today. A works-based religion. Coming up with my own list of things I should do and, and not do. In other words, having my, my mind set on earthly things. Having a, a worldly idea about what it means to be a Christian disciple. This is a very tempting way for people to live. For one reason, because it puts them in control of their own salvation. I come up with my list of things to do and things not to do. And I empower myself. If I can keep these these lists, I know that I have earned myself eternal life. Puts ourselves in the driver's seat of salvation. But you know, ironically, it also leaves people in perpetual anxiety about their spiritual state. Trying to put ourselves in control of our salvation makes us suddenly feel very shaky about the security of our life in Christ. And so Joyce shared, and I shared it with her permission, that she went up to the, to the front of the church many, many times in childhood trying to get re-saved because she had broken some of the church's taboos and thought that she had lost spiritual life. See, that is setting our minds on earthly things. That's having a worldly perspective on the Christian life and Christian faith. And so Paul here, recognizing that this is a problem, it was a problem for the church of of Colossae, and it was going to be a perpetual problem in the church of Christ as long as there was a church on earth, he felt it necessary to write here to us and explain the true essence of Christianity. Here's what the Christian life is really about. It's about receiving Christ in repentance and faith, and through that, receiving the new spiritual life that he gives. And then the Christian life is about spending the rest of your days learning how to live 
in light of that reality. How to bring your daily practice into, into line with who you are in Christ. It's learning to set your hearts on things above, not on things of the earth. But now, what does this look like on a, on a highly practical level? Okay, what does heavenly-mindedness look like? Well, upon first reading of the text, we might get the idea that it means being completely indifferent to the world of people and material things. Just completely become indifferent to all of that and just kind of have our head up in the clouds all the time. You've heard the statement, some people are so heavenly-minded they can do no earthly good. Okay, that, that's kind of the perception that people have when they, when they read this kind of a text. But in fact, Paul is saying nothing of the sort here. Let's start with that word mind in verse 2. Set your minds on things above. Now, if you're using the King James Version, you'll notice that that word is actually translated affection. Set your affection on things above. And that's because the word here speaks to the whole inner person. Not just your understanding, but also your will. This happens throughout the, the uh, New Testament scriptures. Uh, the word mind becomes a, a figure for the whole inner self. So this passage isn't just saying become indifferent to everything around you and then just do nothing but think about heaven all the time. What it's saying instead is set your whole inner self upon heavenly things. It means embrace the values of heaven. You see, this is what heavenly-mindedness entails. And if you will look uh, through the remainder of the book of Colossians, you'll see that this must be so. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, for example, Paul begins to, to lay out in, in great detail what heavenly-mindedness looks like day to day. And he says the first thing it involves is waging war against your own personal vices. Look what he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here are the earthly things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then down in verse 8, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Right? What he is saying is these things are not in line with the values of heaven. So purge them from you, put them to death, live a new kind of life. What does the new life look like? Well, look at chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Verse 14, above all these things, put on love. So we have an interesting set of lists here, don't we? We have a list of things to put to death. Remember, Paul has said we have already died and risen to new life in Christ, but we've still got the vestiges of that old nature in us. So he's saying, now take those things, those vestiges that are left, put them to death too, so that you are a fully consistent Christian disciple. And you'll notice the list of things to put off, the list of things to put on. These are not things like... Don't eat meat, do eat carrots, don't celebrate Halloween, do celebrate Christmas. It's nothing like that, is it? 
Everything on both of these lists have to do with the matters of the heart. Put off lust, malice, selfishness, greed. Get rid of these. They are not consistent with the values of heaven. This is not what Christ was like. And then put on kindness, compassion, love, because these are the values of heaven. This is what Christ is like. This is what it looks like to embrace heavenly mindedness. You'll also notice something else about these two lists. They both relate directly to our interactions with other people. You can notice the arguing on the vice list, arguing, sexual immorality, coveting, lying, slandering. These all relate to our dealings with others. And the virtue list, compassion, humility, being patient, being forgiving, those also deal with our relations to other people. So heavenly mindedness does not mean that I become indifferent to everything around me and just stick my head in the clouds all the time. No, it means that I am working to purge the vices from my heart that are not like Christ. I'm trying to add virtues to my life that will make me more like Christ. And all of them have to do with my fellowship with God and with other people. Purge the vices that break fellowship with God and harm others. Put on virtues that God is pleased with and that will reconcile you to others. The person who is heavenly minded will be living here on this earth among people, interacting with them every day, doing so just as Christ did. And then you look at chapter 3, verse 16. Paul gives us more instructions about being heavenly-minded. Here he talks about the importance of worship with real flesh-and-blood people inside of a local church. He talks about taking in the scriptures with each other and admonishing each other. And he talks about the importance of congregational singing. So here at Grace, we, we do have this live stream, and we have people watching it every week. And they're watching it because they're, they're recovering from surgeries or they're, they're sick and they don't want to come and infect other people, but their longing is to be here because they understand that, that this is the local church. It's not all of us at our homes watching a screen at the same time. It's us living a flesh-embodied existence, sharing our lives together. Hearing, hearing our voices together raised in song and seeing when one of us is down and being an encouragement, ministering the word to each other. It's praying together, meeting our practical needs with one another. This is what life in the church is all about. And Paul says here, if you're going to be heavenly minded, you're going to be an active participant in the real flesh and blood local church. So your mind isn't in the clouds. Your mind is with people. And then, verse 17 of chapter 3, Paul talks about uh, abounding in good works and living lives of gratitude. Then he gets into the really nitty-gritty. Verses 18 to 21, he talks about our family life. He says, a heavenly-minded person will learn how husbands and wives ought to treat each other and how parents and children ought to treat each other. Then he moves on to work life. How masters and servants ought to relate to each other. Or in our day, employers and employees. And then in chapter 4, he talks about our prayer life. Then in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he talks about 
our interactions with non-Christians and what those should look like. So you see through, through all of this that becoming a heavenly-minded person does not mean that you stop living in the real world. Rather, it means that you stop loving the values of the unbelieving world. And instead, you embrace the values of heaven. It means that we learn to live lives which are centered on the gospel of Christ and committed to his priorities. You know, friends, what Paul does here is to protect us from two common errors. The one error is is the false gospel of salvation by works. Paul tells us that it is a wrong approach to life to come up with your own personal list of do's and don'ts, always involving things that either go onto the body or go inside of the body, and then judging whether or not you have spiritual life by those things. He, he smashes the idea that we can merit saving life with God through these external rituals and things that we do. Instead, he has affirmed throughout this book that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. And he explains to us that we are sanctified. That is, we grow up in our Christian life in the same way. You are sanctified by grace through faith in Christ. It is God working in you to will and to do his good pleasure. But then Paul's words here also protect us from the false gospel of easy believism, which has made significant inroads into the Christian church over the past few decades. Easy believism teaches that that becoming a Christian involves nothing more than making an intellectual change. Once you did not believe there was such a person named Jesus or that he lived, died, and rose again, now you do believe that in an intellectual sense. The easy believist says that is of the essence of Christianity. My mind didn't, didn't acknowledge those things before, now my mind acknowledges them today. Therefore, I'm a Christian. They assert that being a Christian involves no necessary change of life. In fact, one of the most uh, popular preachers in America today, a man named Stephen Furtick, just preached this in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, and he put it on Twitter, too, saying, becoming a Christian does not change you. Bold letters. It does not change you. Well, Paul says exactly the opposite here. He says it does change us, and it must change us. Look again at verse 1. He writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Set your minds or your affections on things above, not on the things of the earth. Do you hear Paul's subtle call for self-examination here? He says, Listen, if indeed it is true that you have the new life, you must do this. If you're not doing this, if you're not becoming heavenly minded, if you don't even have a desire to do this, have you really closed with Christ? We are saved 
by God's grace through faith in Christ. But those who are saved also grow. They have a new heart, a new spirit within them. They have new inclinations and they desire to purge the remnants of the sin nature, to take on the virtues of Christ. They want to be active parts of a local church. They want to be better husbands and wives and parents and kids and co-workers and citizens. And they're trying to find out what is the will of Christ in each of these areas. They're eager to change, to become in line with Christ. They want to become who Christ created them to be. So friends, we have our task laid out before us. To reject the false doctrine of salvation by works, but also to reject the false doctrine of easy believism. Instead, to find Paul's path of repentance and faith, to have new life in Christ, and then to live every day trying to grow in Christ. And we will grow in Christ if we know him. So here are our closing questions this morning. Have you indeed received Christ in faith? Not just in your mind, acknowledging facts of history on an intellectual level, but with your will, have you believed and trusted in Christ? Have you taken on that new life that he gives? And now are you giving yourselves to the pursuit of heavenly mindedness? If so, where are you succeeding today? And where is there more work to do? And when will you get started on that work? Let's pray together. Father, once more, we thank you for our church. Thank you for this church family. And Lord, would you so work in us by your grace that we are made willing and able to grow in our Christian lives. Help us, Lord, to take the wisdom of your Son and to apply it to every department of our lives. Help us to engage in that slow but steady process of becoming a heavenly-minded people, not an earthly-minded people. To pursue the Christian life as you have laid out for us, Not to try to pursue it on our own terms, a a pursuit that is futile and that will lead to our own unsettled consciences and, and spiritual anxieties anyway. Help us, Lord, to be confident in our secure position in Christ, to live in light of his work on our behalf. Help us, Lord, to be eager for that heart transformation which will make us a parallel to the Lord who saved us. Or Lord, as that Puritan minister once said, might scriptures be the original and our hearts become the copies. Lord, we pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.